So I think that'll, that'll be something that we'll see in the next five, 10 years. We'll get a, we'll get some systems that are, are really performing well on, on UAVs that can get both, you know, topographic and also sub water surface data. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest today is Lucas Fraser. He is the program manager for the Unmanned Systems Group at NV5 Geospatial. And today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about LiDAR. And specifically, we're going to be talking about LiDAR from drones. Just a quick personal message from me before we get started today. Sometime in the next few weeks, this podcast is going to round or, or past the 400,000 download mark, which is a huge milestone for, for me personally. And I, I just want to say thanks. Thanks very much to all of you that listen in each week. Thank you very much to the people that, that reach out to me and, and, and share their thoughts, their feedback, their encouragement with regards to the podcast. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I understand that there's a lot of competition for your attention. And the fact that you choose to spend an hour, 45 minutes with me each week, it, it, it really means a lot, a lot to me and, and I deeply appreciate it. So thank you very much. Hi, Lucas. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for taking the time to, to do this interview with me. I really appreciate it. So today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about LiDAR scanning from drones, which is not something we've covered before. So uh, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Before we get into all that, that good stuff, would you mind just sort of briefly introducing yourself to the audience, please? And, and perhaps letting us know how you got involved with, with Geospatial. Hi, yeah, Daniel. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm the program manager for the Unmanned Systems Group at NB5 Geospatial. And I actually got involved with Geospatial fairly early on. So I, I did a geodesy and geomatics engineering program at, at the University of New Brunswick here in my hometown. And I, I kind of had the goal of becoming a land surveyor, but I think as, as a lot of the audience will know, it doesn't really end up working out that way. So when I graduated, I just took whatever job I could find, which ended up being at a local aerial mapping company. And I've been processing LiDAR and kind of interacting with LiDAR ever since then. I worked there for about three years, and then I moved on to the, the unmanned systems group here at MB5, where I've been for, for about three and a half years now. Just out of curiosity, before we, we jump into the, the basics of LiDAR and sort of move off into the conversation from there, if you had to give some advice to someone who was looking to, to get into processing LiDAR, what would you tell them? Like, do you need any specific skills or need to understand any specific tools? If you have some sort of, you know, formal training through university or college, that's, that's obviously helpful. But if not, you know, nowadays there's a lot of great resources online and Facebook groups and LinkedIn where people are talking about that stuff. So I would say to, to start learning about GNSS early on and INUs and kind of how those two interact together and then about LiDAR technology and then just start kind of, you know, reading articles and magazines. There's LiDAR magazine and, and LiDAR news and there's, there's a lot of great stuff out there that people could start, start reading and learning about if they're interested. It's interesting. I was so sure that you were going to say you need to understand these five programming languages and this one specific tool. No, I mean, I do, I do program uh, in Python. But that's kind of a bit more self-taught, though. I would definitely say it's a, a huge benefit if you understand the programming languages, but it's not a necessity. Thank you very much for, for sharing that with us. I, I appreciate it. It's always really interesting to hear the perspectives of experts that, that are involved in the industry. Okay, so let's start with, with LiDAR. I'm sure that the audience has a reasonable understanding what it is and, and how it works. But if you were going to explain it to someone who had never heard of it before, 
if you were going to a cocktail party and needed to explain to people what LIDAR was, what would you tell them? Right. So if I was going to bore a bunch of people at a cocktail party, I would start by telling them that LIDAR is light detecting and ranging. People are more familiar, I think, with sonar and radar, which are similar technologies, but just, you know, LIDAR uses light. And you can imagine it if you're, if you're picturing a drone flying through the sky, it's got a scanner on it, and it's shooting out eye-safe pulses of light. They're traveling down to the ground, penetrating through vegetation and getting down to ground, hopefully, and then coming back up to the scanner. It's really simple when you break it down to the basics. It's just a beam of light. You know, we know the speed of light. We can get the two-way travel time, measure the distance, and then use that to build a three-dimensional point cloud. So when we get a LiDAR point cloud, are we talking about, is it returning intensity? Is it returning, are we getting color mixed into that? Can we tell anything based on that return about the surface that, that the return came from? Yeah, so it's not getting, you know, traditional like RGB visible spectrum color that you're used to seeing. It is, like you said, intensity. And it just has to, to do with the reflective materials of, of what we're hitting off of. So if you have a pulse of light that is going off of a reflective vest or something, it's going to be a really strong intensity value compared to, you know, asphalt or something very dark, which will, which will come out very weak. But it, it does, you know, it does roughly correspond to what you would see with a picture, I guess. When you're looking at LiDAR intensity, for the most part, you can still tell what it is you're looking at. And earlier, you mentioned this iSafe wavelength. So LiDAR is an active sensor. So we're we're admitting some radiation and we're collecting the signal again and looking at the intensity values from that. Are we using a standard wavelength? So when we talk about LiDAR, is it one wavelength that we're always talking about? Or does this wavelength change depending on some sort of environmental variable? It is one wavelength. So most scanners are, I think it's around 1,064, 1,050, or in the 1,550 nanometer range. All the companies kind of have different standards, but they're usually using a pretty standard wavelength for topographic mapping. It's just, you know, the best way to get down and see things on the ground. But there is a different wavelength, kind of, it's called a green laser. It's closer to 500 nanometers when you're trying to do bathymetric, so penetrate the water column. This might sound like a relatively silly question. Can I expect to have those two different wavelengths available on the same scanner? You can have two separate scanners within the same compartment or in the same body. They can go on at the same time, but they're kind of separate. But connected to the same IMU and GPS, that, that kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. You can have, you know, basically a, a large number of scanners all connected to the same IMU and GNSS if you want to. So on a, on a previous episode, we we're talking about PDEL or Poodle, the point data abstraction library. And this is kind of built for point clouds. And I remember my guest, Howard Butler, he was, he was saying that a lot of LIDAR work revolves around reducing the data collected. So you go out and you scan an area and you end up with an incredible amount of data. Could you sort of walk us through what that reduction process looks like or, or in what kind of strategies you might use? Especially when you're working with uh, drone LIDAR, it's an even, it can be an even bigger part of it because in some instances we end up with just way more data than we need. So we'll end up with two, 300 points in a one by one meter area. And maybe we need to reduce that down to one, for example. So we have a kind of a lot of internal workloads. I won't go into all of it, but basically a lot of what is generated is topographic mapping. Let's just focus on that for a second. So imagine we're trying to make a ground model for a client. So what we do is we would take the full data set, then we, we would just classify it the ground, 
and we have a lot of automated tools to make that work. And then with a little bit of manual bit at the end where somebody looks over it and makes sure all the ground is looking okay. And then we have different algorithms. So you can just isolate, you know, one point every square meter, or we have adaptive ones where we thin it based on elevation differences. We can do smoothing. There's, there's a lot of stuff that, that goes into making these final deliverables. It almost feels silly sometimes, but it's just the unfortunate limitation of a lot of software programs is they can't handle millions of points. So in a lot of cases, you have this really amazing, amazing ground model where you, you know, you know like I said, you have a hundred points in a one by one meter area. You're picking up just really, really minute changes, but then it has to be thinned down to go into, I don't know whether it's like ArcGIS or, or AutoCAD, Civil 3D, you know, the, the standard programs that are used, but there are other things, you know, you can do break line generation. There, there are other tools that we do to retain the accuracy of the ground model after it's thinned. But it, it's funny, it is a lot of work to take something that we already have, you know, with the full density point cloud and then thin it kind of dumb it down so that clients and people can interact with it. So oftentimes in remote sensing earth observation, you would do some ground truthing, right? So you'd go and look at a satellite image, make your segmentation of that image, and then go out in the real world and perhaps and see, does this actually make sense? Or compare it to a known data, data set and see, does it make sense? Do you do a similar kind of thing with LiDAR? So let's say you filter out, you have a, a surface layer or maybe you've collected all the houses or something and you've pulled that out of your data set. Do you do any kind of ground truthing? And and if so, what might that look like? Yeah. So we we always do ground truthing. We generally work with a a professional land surveyor. So, you know, we have a bunch of them in-house or or maybe the client will provide their own. But LIDAR is is interesting. You know, people know generally know a bit more about photogrammetry. And it, it makes sense when you think about you have a picture and you need a certain number of control points to tie it down. But LiDAR utilizes direct georeferencing. So since we have the GNSS and we have the IMU, all of the points are being positioned off of the coordinate of the base station. So you really only need one control point. But the problem with that is you you really have no idea how accurate your data is. So we work with a lot of different ground, you know, ground pros, surveyors, that kind of thing to to collect these check shots, these truthing shots, both, you know, on hard unvegetated surfaces and then you know sometimes under vegetation too depending on requirements to make sure that our ground models are accurate. Could you just explain to me and the listeners what a check shot is? That's an important distinction because I know with a lot of the standard programs that you can use to process drone data I mean just focusing on imagery for a second like you know Pix4D, uh, Agisoft, you can use points to tie down your data and, and for LiDAR it is just that one point but you can't use those control points that you use to tie down your data as check shots in order to do an accuracy calculation. Those check shots have to be independent. They have to be separate than the control, and then you can bring those in. And in the case of LiDAR, it's generally the vertical that we're comparing. So we'll take the offset of all of those check shots to the elevation of the data, and then we'll use that for our accuracy calculation. So I just want to make sure that I've understood this. So we check shots We've got some surveyors out there. They survey some points. Uh, I'm assuming anyway, and please stop me if I'm on the wrong track. They survey some points and we put targets, perhaps really reflective targets on those points there and then do our LiDAR scan. We already know where those are in the world. And then we're trying to align our LiDAR scan to those targets, to those check shots. That is definitely done. You know, it, The distinction that needs to be made is that control points are points that you use to reference, to tie down your data set. So 
you'll pick the location of the control point in the data set and compare it to the known value and then bring those together. Those are control points. The check shots, you don't use those to tie down your data. You're just using those as independent checks. You know, it's like, it's a point that is not related to the georeferencing at all, because that's, that's the problem. Like you don't have many control points throughout your whole data set. So you want to be confident that the areas where you don't have them are good too. So that's where the independent checks come in. I guess what I'm struggling to understand is how do I see that in my data set or how do I make that comparison? Oh, okay. I understand what you're saying. In the case of horizontal and vertical checks, so it would be a highly reflective target, like you mentioned, something that can be visible in the lighter intensity. But often we are only doing vertical check shots. So you would just compare the elevation of the point to the elevation of your LiDAR point cloud after it has been filtered down to ground. How would you explain to the client the sort of the relative accuracy of the the LiDAR data set that you are delivering in terms of the geographic accuracy and the accuracy within the data set itself? Because I'm assuming anyway, a lot of data sets are made up of multiple campaigns or or multiple flight paths. Yeah, this is a really important aspect as well. So we, we, we break it down into absolute accuracy relative accuracy, and then density. Those are kind of the three main things we're looking at when we're checking point clouds. And I kind of covered the absolute already. That's the control points, but it can be a problem, the relative, especially for some systems with kind of lower grade IMUs. It can be really difficult to tie the data together if it's not calibrated properly, if you're experiencing IMU drift. So basically what we do is we take every flight line and we compare it to the flight line's right directly beside it. So we have a difference between every LiDAR flight line and then we we generate a raster with all of those differences so we, we can see them and then and then build some statistics off of that raster. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. So right at the start of the conversation I mentioned we're talking about LiDAR being collected from from drones. This is gonna sound like a really obvious question, but I'd really like to hear your take on it. Why is it important to collect LiDAR from drones? Like why not just collect it from a plane? Why not just collect it from the ground? What advantage are we seeing with drones? Yeah, I mean, to get the basis of it is just because it makes sense financially. You know, it's not just like a a CEO pet project or something that we're doing because drones are cool. Like our department, our company has planes, we have helicopters. So we would never use a drone unless it made the most sense and, and was the best for the client. So the main reasons, I guess, are money, time, safety, and the level of detail that you need. So in a lot of situations, it's just cheaper. It, it costs money to mobilize a plane or a helicopter. So before you've even collected any data, you already have a large cost that it takes to get that plane or that helicopter to the location. So that's a lot cheaper. For us, we can just put the drone in the back of the car and drive there or you know, bring it on the plane, just like a commercial flight, and fly with it to the location. And that's usually a lot cheaper than mobilizing. Safety is an important factor too. So I guess this would be more comparing to, to traditional methods of, of collecting data on the ground. But there are some cases where you need a high level of detail. You need to be able to pick up features that you can't see because planes and helicopters are flying too high. And drones are the only way to pick that up or to have somebody on the ground. And having somebody on the ground on a busy street in the middle of the road, you know, there's safety concerns. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's often slower too, if you're covering a large area. So those are all really great reasons for using drones as a platform to collect LiDAR. And I appreciate you walking us through that, even though I'm sure it was a bit of an obvious question to a lot of the listeners. 
Can we assume then that because of the, the cost advantage that you're talking about there, can we assume then that drone LiDAR technology has changed a lot over the last few years and is continuing to evolve? Is that the thing that's driving the price down? Yeah, it's, it's definitely changed a lot. You know, people have been using LiDAR for a while now, I think maybe 70s or it's been a, a number of years they've been using LiDAR, but drone LiDAR technology has really only been past 10 years and then really exploded in the last five, five or six, maybe. It's come a long way. At first, it was just the Velodyne pucks, and th- those are still used today, but at the time, that was the only option. They were, you know, originally designed for other purposes, you know, self-driving cars, for example. But now we're seeing a wide range, you know, more competition in the market. There's market, there's Velodyne, uh, Regal, which is what we use. We have a, a Regal scanner and even DJI has come out with a new LiDAR scanner now. And the, the Regal scanner that we use actually can be flown on either a helicopter or a drone. So when you fly it on a drone, you're, you're that much lower to the ground and you're, you're getting that much higher level of detail. That also kind of gives credit to, to the drone platforms too, you know, being able to, to carry something that was originally intended for a helicopter. Could you give us an idea of price? Sure. It's, it, there is a big range in price in the market right now, especially with the new DJI systems and even some companies that have popped up just in the past year offering integrations for those. So I think that you have to be able to spend at the very least the twenty dollars to $30,000 range. And that includes you know, the scanner, the IMU, the GNSS system, and the, the drone itself. So that, that would be the very, I think the very bottom that you'd have to spend. And they can go anywhere up, anywhere up to a couple hundred thousand dollars, which is what we spent on ours. Oh, wow. So, so this sounds like it's a sort of modular system. So I was assuming anyway that the, the IMU and, and the, the GPS system were built into the drone itself. And then it was just a matter of sort of plugging on the, the, the LiDAR sensor. Yeah, no, that, that's a really important distinction because most drones, well, they do have GNSS systems and IMUs on them for their internal navigation, but those aren't good enough to geo-reference our LiDAR. So we actually use an Aplanex, so we have a Regal scanner and a Planex IMU, and they have a really good, you know, they work together and they have a really good integration, but it's a, a high-grade IMU that, that is, it's getting around 200 measurements a second just in order to be able to pick up all of the the fine movements of the LiDAR scanner as it's kind of being bucked around by the drone and the different angles it's getting. Wow, that is a lot of data. Yeah. <laughs> so we've talked about uh, a little bit about what, what LiDAR is. We've talked about how we're capturing it and some of the sensors involved. And so I guess now would be a really good time in the conversation to talk about what, what are the use cases for this? So a lot of the listeners will understand that we can build these uh, amazing sort of 3D models based on this kind of data which is incredible, but what are people using these models or this data for in the real world? Yeah, so we, we do a lot of different things with our data. Our two biggest markets that we're in right now would have to be the utility sector and engineering. So for the utility sector, that would be power lines. Utility companies, they're always you know replacing poles, building new ones, looking at their existing infrastructure, and we can go in, we collect LiDAR data, and we run a weather station at the same time and using the LiDAR data and the weather data, they can bring it into a program called PLS CAD and calculate all of the, the loading, the sag and the tension, basically just how different lines, power lines and poles are going to react under a variety of weather conditions and how they're going to react when they add new poles down the line. So 
it's really interesting. And and they we also do fire prevention. So the big problem in California, you know, trees falling, lines hitting power lines, causing fires, mudslides, that kind of thing. So we can go in and collect LIDAR data and analyze it in order to determine which trees are at risk of falling on lines and where areas where vegetation needs to be cleared away. For the engineering space, that's mainly just topographic mapping. So we're able to get really, really high level of detail with the drones. And it's the LIDAR is not quite as good, but, but getting close to what would be traditionally collected with mobile LIDAR from a vehicle. So we can use that data to, to get 3D brake lines on curbs, retaining walls, and inside people's backyards. And the great thing about the drone as compared to mobile is it is getting past fences and in people's backyards, and we're getting a really, a really large swath. And, and we can use that to do really, really detailed mapping for you know road improvements. We did a project for a city here in California where they were trying to analyze their drainage and, and help that feed into their master drainage plan, see how all the water would flow in the entire city and an area was where it was going to run off. And, and you know, since we were picking up curbs and, and all kinds of other 3D features, we were able to really make a model that was that was good for them to be able to predict all that. Wow, that sounds amazing. I want to go back to the uh, so some of the analysis that you're talking about, this, uh, some of those use cases. And I'm curious, do you see people, are they most interested, interested in the surfaces that you can create using this kind of data? Or are they interested in extracting objects out of the data and then you know, using them in their models? Most of our clients right now are actually interested in the surfaces. So just the data filtered down to its final ground. There's definitely a market for object extraction, and we do do some of that. For example, we, you know, we extract all of the power poles and paint striping, utility boxes, basically everything that you would see. But we actually do a lot of that with our, our imagery, like our aerial imagery that we collect at the same time as the LiDAR. Yeah, I was curious about that, if because a lot of the times I see those two things working together. Yeah, so mo- I know we focus mainly on LiDAR, but that's that's a big part of what we do as well. You know, we collect really high detail aerial imagery and it, it's kind of, it's a nice combination to do them both. So w- we often do them both independently so we can use the imagery and the LiDAR as as a check. You know, we can use them to, to compare each other to make sure we're not having any issues. And then, then they kind of split off. So our imagery is used for all of our 2D portions of our, our engineering drawings. So that's Basically anything you can see, we're picking it up and we're mapping it. And then our LiDAR is used for the 3D portion, which is the surface model. And then we bring them together at the end. So oftentimes I, I see people focusing on, on one or the other. And I'm always curious to hear experts' opinion on this. Do you see them as being complementary or competitive, the, these two different technologies? We've always kind of viewed them as complementary. I know that LiDAR is you know, competitive with traditional stereo photogrammetry because the brake line generation and, and the 3D mapping is is something that was traditionally done with the stereo. But we, we've we kind of just switched over to doing everything 3D related with LiDAR because the benefit of being able to see under the vegetation and to, to generate so many points on the ground that don't have to be picked up uh, manually has been a huge benefit for us. But then the, the imagery is just as crucial too. When we're doing brake line generation, for example, you know, we need the imagery in the background to be able to see what we're looking at. It makes everything a lot easier. So they really go hand in hand. I mean, it's, it does happen, but it's fairly rare 
that we go to a project and we just collect one or the other. We're, we're usually getting both nowadays. I just want to clarify here. What, what are you actually talking about when you talk about brake line generation? So a brake line is just a, you can think of it as a 3D polyline. At the start, I was talking a bit about how we have to thin our point clouds down because we're, we're getting a lot of data. And let's, let's focus on something like a curb, for example. In our LiDAR data, we are getting enough points to be able to really well, like define a curb really well. The unfortunate thing is we can't bring millions of points into, uh, let's, let's say AutoCAD, for example. So what we have to do is we break it down into a thinned data set and then 3D polylines to uh, represent features like curbs, you know, retaining walls, bridges, that kind of thing. Thank you very much for clarifying that. I, I should have asked you earlier in the conversation. So you've talked a lot about working for, for clients there. So, and you talked about like the, the market pressures, what the market wanted. When a client comes to you, do they already know what can be achieved with LiDAR? Or do they just know, oh, I can generate the surface, great, that's it, I just need a surface? Or I guess the question is here, how much education is there around LiDAR as a product? Do people already know exactly what it can do? Or are you constantly needing to educate people and explain and go into depth? Or do they come to you and say, we know what we need, we need some LiDAR, and because we know exactly these five products we can, we can generate from it, and this can solve these seven problems for us. We generally have three types of clients, I would say. So our, especially our geospatial and utility clients, they know LiDAR, they know what they want already. They're like, hey, we want this data set collected and we want it done with UAVs because it needs to be this dense. And, you know, we just go and do it. Probably one of the largest portions, all of our engineering clients, they maybe are familiar with the word, but we usually do, you know, demos and presentations with them to kind of familiarize them with what the data set looks like and what our final deliverables look like, especially our land surveying clients, especially clients that are switching over from doing things, you know, manually in the field with like a total station or, or RTK or a level. They really want to see what's going on. You know, they don't want, just want to get a map from you with no idea how it was generated. So they definitely are interested in, and we do a lot of, a lot of education with them. And then we, we also have clients that, that don't care, you know, they want a map. They want to see some contours on there. They don't care how it was done. Yeah, and, and that's fair enough. They're just interested in the sausage, not how it was made. And that's fine. You talked earlier about the last 10 years that this has really become more available, more, more accessible, maybe because the technology has changed and things have gotten cheaper, maybe because the platforms have changed, maybe it's just because more people understand what it can do and therefore more demand. So sometimes when we see a technology like this, show up and become more available, it pushes another technology out. Is there a technology that LiDAR is sort of pushing out, like LiDAR from drones? Is it pushing out another technology? No, I, I wouldn't say that. I did mention stereo photogrammetry. There's been some jobs that would have been traditionally done with that, as well as some you know, supplementation to get features that are under vegetation that are now being done with LiDAR. But there's a lot of work right now, and it's almost creating its own market space, I would say. Yes, we are taking a bit away from maybe photogrammetry or maybe some work that was traditionally done with RTK, but you know those fields definitely still have lots lots to do and and there's there's not something that is being totally thrown out, I would say. Again, sometimes when new technologies become more accessible, other people show up as well and start using them. And let's say I had $30,000 to go and buy the drone. I, I'm not a, a drone pilot, so it's, it's not going to happen. But let, let's say I did. 
and I got some you know, flight planning software, do you think I could go out and sort of create the same kind of data, the same kind of accuracy as what you can? Yeah, I have, I have total faith in you, Daniel. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult. I will say it does, it does take a while um, to, to learn what you're doing, how to interact with these data sets. It's difficult to create a good calibrated point cloud, but from there, it's even more difficult to turn that into useful information. Most of our clients don't want an enormous point cloud just handed to them. In fact, almost none of them do. They want to be able to make something out of it, which, you know, it, it takes a lot of experience to be able to do that. So I will say if you're looking to get into it, make sure you make some key hires and people experience. The, the reason why I, why I asked this question is because a lot of the times we hear about technology becoming available and then people start throwing around this word democratization, right? We're lowering the barriers to entry. So I was just curious to what your take would be on this. If anyone can just go out and as long as you've got the money, then you can compete in the market. But it sounds like there's more to it than that. Yeah. And it totally depends on what you're trying to accomplish too. I mean, LiDAR is being democratized in a way because it exists on iPhones now and iPads. So anybody can walk around and do a quick scan with their phone. But when you're trying to produce high accuracy survey grade deliverables, or you know, especially work for utility companies, you better know what you're doing because if you make mistakes and if you deliver something or overpromise, there could be real world consequences. You know, especially when you're talking about power lines and Indian forest fire management. Yeah. So so let's stay with the idea of real world consequences for a second here. A couple of times on the podcast now, I've had guests that have referred to data as being a type of infrastructure. And so as soon as we use the word infrastructure, there's this almost expectation that somebody needs to be in charge, somebody needs to be on the hook, and somebody needs to make sure this thing is maintained, because it, we're going to build other products, other services on top of this. Do you see this when you think about some of these models that you're creating? Like, do they go out into the public? Are, are they maintained and updated? Yeah, of, of course. You know, a lot of the UAV data sets, I guess would say, are, are kind of limited to one or two uses. You know, they're, they're generally smaller jobs. But when you think about LiDAR on the whole, uh, looking at the United States, for example, they have a national 3D elevation program where the goal is to get LiDAR for the whole country. They've done a study and they've identified over 600 business cases for it. So they, they really see the value there. And it, it kind of puts things into perspective when you're thinking about processing something that is going out into the public. It's going to be used for infrastructure or, or flood risk management, natural resource con- conservation wildfires, I mentioned that, and forest management too. So a lot of large forestry companies or, or city governments, they have forest inventory programs and, and the lighter can be used. So when you think about all the potential uses, it, it really makes you, I guess, just be a little bit more careful about what you're putting out into the world. Again, if we could just stay with this idea of infrastructure for a second here, when people create that data set, do you see them just sort of writing in the metadata, uh, this is just, this is not being actively maintained, or this was collected by these people, and this is the level of accuracy? Or can you see some sort of structure around this where people are saying, if you're going to contribute once, there's an expectation that you will maintain it? Or do you think the government of the United States will maintain this data set? Yeah, so their, their plan is to recollect at an interval. I'm, I don't remember what that is, maybe seven or 10 years or something, but all the data sets that they have they have very accurate metadata for them. So the data was collected, when it was published, the accuracy, the number of control points used. 
So there is a lot of a lot of metadata available for these these publicly published data sets. Just to try and round off the conversation here, if we, we come back to drones again for a second, you've said there's been a lot of advances in terms of technology in the last 10 years. What do you see for the next, you know, five, 10 years? And, and I realize it's difficult to look out into the future and, and make guesses, but if you had to guess, what would you expect to see in 10 years time? Is it just a case of smaller, lighter, cheaper, or, or is there something else out there? Yeah, smaller, lighter, cheaper is actually always my go-to. That's, I think, the way things are going. But I think topobathymetric is something that you could see driving drone innovation. There's a couple companies, you know, I mentioned Regal, uh, Astrolite, that, that have made these sensors, but we're not really seeing a widespread use of them and specifically not by governments. So, you know, governments are probably some of the biggest purchasers of shoreline information. So I think that'll, that'll be something that we'll see in the next five, 10 years. We'll get a, we'll get some systems that are, are really performing well on, on UAVs that can get both, you know, topographic and also sub water surface data. I know that you have a, a background in this. Would you mind just sort of giving us an understanding of what kind of depths we can collect at, what kind of water clarity we need, that kind of thing? So the listeners have a bit of an understanding of what this might look like, you know, where it might be useful. The application for that is, is the near shore. So it, it fills in the gap in between topographic, you know, just ground LIDAR and sonar from vessels. Because for the sonar, it, it can be very difficult and time consuming for them to, to collect really close to the shore. So, you know, it's more efficient to get in from LIDAR. And the, the scanners range, you know, you can get anywhere from like 10 centimeters all the way up to, I think, 30, 40 meters, depending on the water clarity, maybe even even deeper than that. And that's what it really comes down to. So with the, the topographic regular, you know, aerial LIDAR, you just, you watch for clouds, you watch the weather and you're good to go. But for the, the topobathy, you also need to be watching out for the water clarity, specifically turbidity. And, and that can be anything from lowering, uh, they call them secchi disks into the water just to, it's just a circular disk that you lower in and, and you see how far, how far down it goes. And that kind of gives you an idea how clear the water is all the way to, uh, live turbidity monitoring buoy that's you know spitting out real-time measurements to your cell phone that can be done just to to create really nice charts and it is it has some of the same you know flood mapping some of the same applications that you would that i mentioned earlier i feel like i'm asking a lot of really silly questions today and here's another one one of the reasons you said that lidar had an advantage over photogrammetry was because you could see through vegetation is this the same thing when we think about doing a LIDAR bathymetric survey? Yeah, yeah. So you, you can, you know, get, get down through eelgrass and seagrass and, and different types of aquatic vegetation as well. And I should, I should probably clarify, I guess it's not exactly seeing through vegetation. You know, the, the laser beam isn't passing through trees and leaves. It is getting multiple returns per pulse. So it is just because the light is passing through small, very, very tiny gaps in the vegetation to get down through to the ground because you don't usually have just a totally blocked out, you know, wall of vegetation. There's always tiny little gaps that the light can get through and return back up to the sensor. Thank you very much for clarifying that for us. I mean, that was pretty clumsy of me to describe it in that way. Lucas, I really want to thank you. I found this conversation absolutely fascinating. I appreciate your time. And above all, I think I really appreciate your patience. Thank you very much. If someone's listening to this and they think, wow, I would like to connect with that guy, I would like to find out more about what he's working on or, or perhaps ask some more questions, where can they go to do that? 
Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. I, I'm fairly active there. I, I post a lot about the work that we're doing and, you know, comment on other people's stuff too. So feel free to reach out to me that way. And I just wanted to say, you know, thanks for having me on, Daniel. I'm a fan of the show, so it, it's a big honor to be on. You are most welcome. I've really enjoyed talking with you. So I really hope you enjoyed that conversation between myself and Lucas Fraser. I will put a link to his LinkedIn profile in the show notes. You can catch up with him there. When I was listening back to this episode, I realized that I was using GPS or saying GPS instead of GNSS and Lucas kept patiently correcting me on that. And I, I just want to say I do recognize that. I, I apologize for it and I will I'll do better in the future. It also occurred to me when I was listening back to this episode that we didn't spend much time on describing what an IMU is. So an IMU is an inertial measurement unit. That, that's what IMU stands for. And what we need here is we need the combination of these two things. We need the, the GNSS to calculate the three, uh, three degrees of freedom. So the longitude, the latitude, and the altitude. And we use the IMU to calculate the roll, the pitch, and the yaw of the sensor. So we're trying to figure out the pose of the sensor here. So we didn't spend much time in this particular episode going into details around that kind of thing. But if, if this is something that interests you and you want to know a little bit more about it, then you might be interested in an episode of, I published a wee while back called How to Augment Reality. This was with Tori Smith from Matbox Computer Vision and Augmented Reality Platform. And he, he goes into a lot more depth uh, around this in a way that you know everyone can understand. So, so that's worth checking out. So another podcast episode that you might find interesting was an episode around the point data abstraction library. If you look, go back in your feed and look for that, if you haven't listened to it already, it's really interesting. My guest was incredible, Howard Butler, absolutely brilliant guy, and talked a lot about you know collecting these point clouds, how he processes it, and mentioned some really, really interesting tools that are free and open source. And I think that if you're into point cloud data, you, you'll find that interesting. So that's well worth checking out. I'll put links to these things in the show notes. And uh, it's also worth mentioning here that we publish quite long form articles about each episode on our website, mapscaping.com. So if you missed anything, you can go along there and a couple of days after each episode goes live, it, it should be available to you there as well. So the, the way this podcast works or the, the way I do things is I, I look for a topic or I look for a guest. And we're, Let's say I find a guest and my first step is to reach out to this person, organize a time to have what I call a pre-interview. And, you know, we have this kind of casual chat. We get to know each other and we align on questions and topics. You know, what, what, would, what would overlap with their area of expertise and, and what would serve you the best? I spend quite a lot of time with people, I guess, is what I'm getting at. And Lucas is, is a really nice person, super nice, generous guy very knowledgeable very patient and so i'd just like to invite you again if you are active on linkedin or use it you know reach out to him if you enjoyed the episode let him know that connect with him there if you have questions i am confident that he will take the time to to help and that's it from me that's it for another episode of the mapscaping podcast thank you so much for tuning in again this week it's it's much appreciated and i really don't take it for granted i, I really do appreciate it and as always you're more than welcome to reach out to me and in fact i would really appreciate it if you did you can find me on linkedin there'll be a link to my to my account in the in the show notes of this episode you can also reach out to me on twitter at mapscaping and of course, if email is your thing, feel free to send an email to info at mapscaping.com. Um, send me a thoughtful question and I will send you a thoughtful response. Thanks very much. I'll see you again next week. Bye.